We gather together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of it. And we refuse to forget him in the midst of all the potential distractions during this special holiday season. Jesus is indeed the reason for the season. Um, He's special. And the people whom he loved thought so. He not only was a master of the universe and a master teacher, he was a master of relationships. And so when he called a bunch of smelly, most fishermen, they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. There was just something attractive and endearing about him. And they were not disappointed in the course of his three years of ministry here. Uh, He was calling them to do marvelous things. There would be a cost involved and they became increasingly willing to pay it uh, because he won their hearts and they trusted him. And then they were informed of the fact that he was going to leave them. It's hard for us to appreciate uh, the weightiness of that message to them since we're 2,000 years removed from it. He was their shepherd, the chief shepherd, a rabbi like none other. Nobody taught with the authority with which he had, and nobody performed the miracles, nobody won hearts the way he did. And then he told them, I'm going to depart. And uh, see if you can imagine the um, confusion, the fear, and the anxiety they had upon hearing that message. What will happen to us now was their, was their question. And the Lord, being so, so very sensitive, offered to them astoundingly hopeful words, which we'll see in the text before us tonight. We're only going to look at three verses. It's in John's Gospel. That's where we have been spending a lot of time. And in three verses in John chapter 14, the Lord gives two astoundingly magnificent promises, very hopeful promises, which applied to his followers in that day, and I believe his followers in this day as well. So take a look with me at the first promise, which is found in John chapter 15. We'll start in verse 12. Again, just three verses tonight, but they're stock full of good stuff. Look how John 14 verse 12 begins. Truly, truly. So there's no fat in the Bible, no extraneous information for the Lord to say that twice essentially means, I really mean what I say. In fact, literally what he said is, amen and amen, or yes and amen. We usually attach amen uh, at the end of a, a statement made by the Lord of one of his representatives, but he affirmed his own words right at the beginning. I'm not sure we could do that. Uh, He really meant uh, to fulfill what he's about to say, so he starts out by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, the you in the immediate context, as you now know, were his intimate followers. We call them disciples, but I think by extension, he's, he's speaking to all of us who are named by his name, and I get this from the next phrase, which says, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, so that's us as well, for Every man or woman, boy or girl, who has fulfilled that condition, what the Lord is about to promise applies to us as well. And this is what he said, the works that I do, he, the one who believes in me, he, in my absence even, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. So, wait just a minute. Greater works than these he will do? Greater works than even the works of Jesus, the miracle worker? Is this really what this passage is saying? 
that we who believe in him will do even greater works than those which he did. Do you remember some of the works of Jesus that we have been reviewing in John's gospel? Do you remember how he gave sight to those who were blind and how he made lame people even afflicted from birth, how he enabled them to walk? Do you remember how he calmed the storm in the mere power of his words? Do you remember, forget about turbulent waters, which he stilled. Do you remember how he walked upon the water? We read about that. Do you remember how once there was a crowd of thousands and they were hungry and there wasn't enough food to go around and he spoke into existence a multiplied effect so that with mere loaves and fishes, everybody ate and there were leftovers? How about this? Surely you remember this. He raised a man from death and gave him new life. These are astounding miracle works of the Lord Jesus. And so therefore, I wonder about what this verse says. Does it actually promise that people like you and I will do, even in his absence, greater works than these? And I think the answer is yes, and also no. Uh, so here's the no. Folks, let's be realistic. We simply have not exceeded the magnificence of the physical miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know there are people, particularly on TV, who like lay claim to this, but I say give verification to it. I do not believe our miracle-working abilities... God still performs and does miracles through his people today. Don't misunderstand. I just don't think the miracles of the millennia since the Lord ascended, I don't think those at our hands have exceeded in intensity and enormity the physical miracles of the Lord Jesus. So I don't think that's what this phrase, you'll do greater works, means. What then does it mean? I think the key in answering this question is found in the very next phrase, because... You'll do greater works than these. Here's why. Because I go to the Father. Greater works will you do because I go to the Father. So here's the deal. He who has no beginning nor end left the presence of the Father. You know this. We're about to celebrate it like crazy. The Christmas event, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the enfleshed babe, the God-man. So he was with the Father from eternity past and chose to subject himself to enfleshment, the likes of which you and I are contained in. And in the course of doing that, the otherwise unbounded God chose to confine himself in the ways that limit and confine us, two ways. We're limited to space, and we're limited to time. For instance, everyone here is in now time. Not one person here can be in then time until we get there, and then it becomes now time. There's not a person here who can go back to what used to be time. We're confined to the present. We can't go back to the past. Now we can worry about the future, but we can't get there until the future becomes now time. Also, we're confined in terms of space. Here we are. We are, listen, I am here now, which means I'm not there now. And the only way I can get there now is if I cease to be here now and went there instead. Can you see the limitations? So the Lord Jesus, the transcendent deity, subjected himself 
to those things which limit us, space and time. And so when he came here, he limited himself to a physical body. He was contained in it. Almighty God limited himself to the bounds of enfleshment. He was confined with regard to space and also time. His time was approximately 2,000 years ago in a place called Israel. And he never left that place. But after the resurrection... He ascended and went back to the Father. Now, that's where he is, therefore the limits of space and time are no longer his. He has ascended to a different place at present, and he has now extended himself, think about it, way beyond his sphere of influence when he was enfleshed and here. Now, how has he extended himself beyond the confines of space and time with which he was limited when he was here. Look around. He's done it through you and I. He, because he left to go with the Father, sent us another helper, the Holy Spirit. And people who believe in him, who become indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of Jesus in us, now can extend the limited ministry of Jesus in an unlimited way, literally around the world. In fact, the entire book of Acts, which takes place after the Gospels, the entire books of Acts proves this particular point. Uh, see Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Eight, for instance, here's what it says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Where? Both in Jerusalem. Yeah, well, he was there. And in Judea and Samaria, he was there. And even to the remotest part of the earth, he was not there. Even to the remotest part of the earth. Folks, I believe this these are the greater works which the Lord said limited human, ordinary people like you and I would perform. On one day, for instance, recorded in the book of Acts, Peter preached. And on that day, 3,000 people who heard Peter's message were radically saved, converted, moved from darkness to light and were embraced by the Lord Jesus as their personal saviors by their Messiah. I believe on that particular day, as a result of the preaching of one man in one place at one time, there probably were more souls saved than the entirety of the Lord's earthly ministry here. These are the greater works, I believe, the Lord said, even ones such as you and I will perform. And so he's saying to his disciples, be comforted. I promise you that even upon my departure and even in my absence, you will do, empowered by my spirit in you, even greater works than you saw me perform in extent and magnificence. So they may be asking, oh God, we know you're going. What then will happen to us when you are gone? And I believe his answer in essence might have been you, not just you, you and all those who believe in me will be empowered by my spirit and will take the gospel to all people in all places and at all times. Now, I am not minimizing the greatness of the physical miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are indeed great. But I think the spiritual miracle of winning a soul to Christ is even better, greater. Think about it. 
Jesus healed many people. One in particular comes to mind, John chapter 5, at the pools of Bethesda. It's a real place. Some of us were there not too long ago. At the pools of Bethesda, the Lord pronounced healing upon man who had been in his sickness for many, many years. And yet, this is a mystery. We have no record of that man ever coming to faith in spite of the physical miracle, ever coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, there were many, many other people who were healed by the Lord Jesus who never were spiritually reconciled to the Father through him. Now, these were the miracles the Lord performed, and they were magnificent, but he promised that there would be greater miracles, greater things to take place, even by one such as you and I. Folks, the physical miracles of the Lord did indeed change people's lives for a time. But the spiritual miracles of salvation, well, that affects a person's life for all eternity. Uh, uh, see if you like this statement. And if you don't agree with it, I feel certain I will hear from you. Uh, but I'll make it anyway. I think it is greater to save souls than to heal bodies. We're all getting glorified bodies. I mean, I think it's greater to heal. Think about what happens when somebody is saved. Uh, what a miracle. This movement, the Bible says, from one domain to another. That person is moved immediately by faith from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Oh, my goodness. That is a miracle. Can you imagine that miracle being reproduced by ordinary gospel communicators like you and I to all people groups worldwide? Can you imagine that? Those are the greater works the Lord, I believe, is saying we will perform. Furthermore, the Lord says... Uh, not only will you perform those greater works in my absence, but I will even tell you how to get it done. And tonight, uh, in the next two verses, you will see one of the ways he tells us we are to get it done. In subsequent weeks, there are two or three other things we'll add to it. But for tonight, here's what the Lord says about how to get it done. Pray. Look, verse 13. Whatever you ask, that's prayer. In my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, please take note of the context in which those two verses are contained. And in so doing, I think we will avoid the uh, rather grotesque misinterpretation of this passage. The context, remember, is about the Lord giving assurance to his followers that even in his absence, even when he departs, even when he leaves them, he is telling them, you will be empowered to perform greater works. My ministry on a greater scale will continue through you once I send into you my Holy Spirit. That's the context. And they are to pray for success in that ministry and for fruitfulness. They are to pray for success in performing these greater works. This is the context of the promise. Otherwise, you'll take it as a blank check. You'll just extract this phrase. People do it. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. And so you go to certain churches, and there's a whole school of theology which will say, do you want a Cadillac? Just claim it. 
And this, this verse will be invoked. Whatever you ask, oh God, I want a Cadillac. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. This is a clear example of uh, how if you don't let the context rule, you're going to become part of a whole theological movement that has no biblical basis, but it sure does have a, an appeal to our carnal nature. Good night. I have a divine Santa Claus up there, and uh, he's given me a blank check. All I have to do is ask for something in Jesus' name, and this verse guarantees I will get it. That's not what it's saying. This promise, whatever you ask in my name, remember the context, is with regard to the greater works we are to do in the absence of the Lord. And the greater work is the worldwide propagation of the gospel message. It is the great commission. How do we do these greater works, the greater works of spreading the gospel around the world? Well, I'll tell you how. We ask for help. That's what the Lord is saying. Ask for help. In Jesus' name. And you see that phrase repeated, don't you, in verse 13 and 14. When things are repeated in the Bible, we should take note of it. If we pray for help in fulfilling our mission to propagate the gospel worldwide, if we pray in Jesus' name, God hears and will answer. So now in this context, we're looking at two promises made by the Lord. The first we just looked at is the one in which he says, you will be engaged in the doing of greater works. Some misinterpret that to mean, I'm going to be a miracle worker, the likes of which made what Jesus did pale in comparison. Misinterpretation of the verse. The second promise, we're reading it now, is about asking for anything in Jesus' name and being confident that he will do it. That one also is grotesquely misinterpreted. Both promises are subject to distorted interpretation. The greater works promise has nothing to do with performing miracles that far exceed the extraordinary nature of the Lord's miracles. It has nothing to do with that. And we are not given a blank check in the second promise. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That one is also subject to gross misinterpretation. It surely looks like a blank check. All you have to do is utter your request to God and make sure you tack on the magical words in Jesus' name, and you will be guaranteed that he will answer. Folks, that is simply not true. It's not right. The use of the phrase in Jesus' name is not meant to be some magical incantation obligating God to do for us whatever we want for him to do for us. What then does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? In the culture of the day, a name was used for more than designation. It was definition of the character of the person so named. And so to pray in Jesus' name is to do a few things. One, it is to utter our requests through him as high priest. We don't come through any other. Second, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in light of his character and mission on earth. So if we ask for things consistent with the character and mission of Jesus, we can be assured that God hears and God will answer those prayers. That's what this promise is saying. 
To pray in Jesus' name, in other words, is to pray as Jesus would. To ask in Jesus' name is, in effect, to ask as Jesus would. Therefore, to ask for selfish things is not to pray in Jesus' name. To ask for ungodly things is not to pray in Jesus' name. To ask in Jesus' name is simply to pray as Jesus would pray. This notion of asking for anything uh, without sifting it through the lens of Scripture and asking is this consistent with the character of Christ, to do that simply tacking on the phrase in Jesus' name is magical thinking. It's kind of idolatry. I pastored a church in Chicago a million years ago, and we used to have sometimes in the service a kind of an open time of conversational prayer where members of the congregation would pray briefly different statements. And then at the end, whoever would close our time of prayer would close in Jesus' name. Had a lady one time who came to me and who said, I really like this church and you're okay once in a while, she said to me, but I'm leaving, I'm not coming back. And I said, good. No, I didn't. That's just what I wanted to say. But I did not say that. Uh, I just thought it. Um, uh, I said, well, 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 what's the problem? She said, this is a church in which you do not pray in Jesus' name. She thought there's some liturgical, magical requirement to end every prayer with those magical words. I tried to explain to her, no, 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 no. To pray in Jesus' name means we find our access to the throne of grace through him and him alone. He's the bridge and mediator that allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't go through Buddha, Mohammed, Moses, or anybody else. We go through Jesus. Secondly, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in light of his character. He's holy. He's perfect. He's good. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in light of all of his perfections and attributes. Well, anyway, she didn't see it that way, and, and I, I lost her, and I've been forever grateful. <laughs> and behind praying in Jesus' name, you can see this, can't you, in verse 13, is the goal of bringing glory to God. You pray in light of the glory of God. You can count on it. He hears and will answer. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, says Jesus, that will I do. Why? So that you can be healthy and wealthy and have everything you want. No, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In essence, the Lord is saying, you can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. That's what he's saying. This is what we ought to make the focus. This is what ought to have centrality in our prayers. Oh, God, be glorified. Only be glorified. So Jesus is our good shepherd. We identified him as such earlier on in John's gospel, meaning he desires to give us, his sheep, good things because he's a good shepherd. Therefore, to ask of Jesus, our good shepherd, to ask of him, Things we think are good is a good thing to do. However, God may not give us those good things because a good shepherd and a good God may have even better things in mind to give us. Things with regard to our ultimate good and his glory. So it is good, for instance, to pray for physical healing. It is very good to do that. It's good to pray for a job. It's good to pray for a life partner if you do not have one and want one. 
It's good to pray for emotional healing if you struggle with depression or anxiety. These are good things. But then we must accept God's answer to those requests in light of what he knows to be in our ultimate best interests and what really will redound to his glory. I struggle with depression. I've shared this with you uh, before. I'm not ashamed of it because many of you do as well. So there you have it. And I used to pray often, oh, God, take this from me, take this from me. And um, always the answer I I received apparently was no. Well, that was very perplexing to me because it seemed like such a debilitating thing to struggle with. And now I no longer ask God to take it away. I do ask him to help me to manage it and use it for good in his glory. And how does he do it? There's never been a member of Sagemont Church who's spoken to me and entrusted to me your own struggle with depression or anxiety to whom I preach that. (laughs) How dare I do that since I'm a fellow struggler? So my own struggle has produced in me an understanding and uh, capacity to relate to others similarly struggling uh, with a way I never would have been able to just by going through seminary. You don't get it. Some of the most insensitive people in the world are you know, seminary graduates. And then um, I thank God for my struggle now because it drives me to scripture. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing kind of well, I must tell you my appetite for scripture is not as great. But when I'm hurting, the mood fluctuations are difficult. I run to the text and they're like pregnant with meaning. The Bible is alive. It's like a letter written to me by a divine counselor. Every word has meaning. I'm not so sure I would have that interest in the Bible, but for my own need. So we pray to a good shepherd. We say, oh God, it would be good if I was free of this or if I had that. And he always hears, but the good shepherd sometimes says, that's a good thing, but I have something better for you and something that will accrue to my glory more than if I healed you or took that condition away. In other words, asking God for something good is a good thing. And we ought to conclude our prayer as the Lord did in Jesus' name. And then we ought to conclude as he did, nevertheless, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done, Father. Father, I think this would be a good thing. Nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And it may be at times that the Lord who hears says no, or he says not yet. Now that may look like an unanswered prayer, but I think that's a misnomer if you're a child of the king. There's no such thing as a prayer that goes unanswered by a caring heavenly father. This, that's, that's a misnomer. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God doesn't say, uh, doesn't, God doesn't ignore the, uh, the um, petitions of his children. He's a good father. So our father always answers our prayers, but sometimes the answer is no or not yet. I hope I and you together can get to the point where we trust God enough to thank him for so-called unanswered prayers. In other words, to thank him for his no's and his not yet, knowing father knows best. I hope we can grow to the point where we thank God for not giving us all that we asked for and instead trusting in his kind intentions to give us all that we need, again, for two purposes, our eternal good 
and his glory. Folks, we may need dependence on him at times more than we need physical healing. Did you know that? We may need unemployment sometimes in order to be employed in learning to lean on God. We may need loneliness so as to find our rest in him. We're asking for those things which seem to be good to us, and don't worry, the Father doesn't rebuke us. He just smiles, I think, in a very benign way and says just as little children as we would smile to little children who demand things that are really not in their best interest, the father says, ah, that's the best you can come up with, but I have something much better in mind for you. I think Paul is a great example of this. You know about this text. He was afflicted in some way, and he beseeched uh, the Lord for it to be taken away, and uh, the response of the Lord was no. God denied Paul his request. Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 and on. Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What does he mean? God took an ordinary man, Paul, and he entrusted to him extraordinary revelations, insights, cosmic, lofty truths not available to everybody. Paul, the apostle who wrote a good deal of the New Testament, was entrusted with these great revelations. And he said, because of the surpassing greatness of these, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Look, God allowed whatever it is that had Paul for a good reason, that is to keep Paul from arrogantly and pridefully reading the wrong conclusion into what God entrusted to him. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Paul said it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. God allowed it to keep me, here it is, from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, here's the part we don't like, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, said Paul, therefore I'd rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, he said, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God did not grant Paul's request because doing so would not ultimately be good for Paul and would not ultimately glorify God. So as we Draw to a close, let me remind you of one other so-called unanswered prayer. It was one uttered by the Lord Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. We call it Gatshmanim, oil press. Some of us were there too, not too long ago. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord said, Father, let this cup pass from me. And the Father heard, and the Father answered, And the father said, no, my son, you must drink from this cup of suffering for it is your destiny. It is for people's good and my glory. And the son said, thy will be done. Now that is prayer in Jesus' name. And we can see, I hope everyone here can personally see and understand that it was for our greater good and for God's greater glory that, the, that he did not say yes to the son's request. 
Where would we be if the father said, yes, my son, you need not go to the cross for their sin. You tell me where we would be. Thank God that sometimes his answer to our prayer is no. This positive confession, believe it and you have it, think it into existence nonsense, is occultic magical thinking which purports to twist the arm of God, having discovered some formula obligating him to give us what we want. No, God is far bigger. There is no way to coerce him into giving us what we want, and we need not because he's good. And he gives us what's best. He even declined the son's invitation. And aren't we grateful for it? Where would we be but for the cross of Jesus Christ? So we can thank God for his yeses. We ought to in response to our prayers. But I hope we can even grow to be sufficiently mature that we thank him for his no's as well. Our Lord, even now, is physically absent from us, but he has not left us without a plan. He's not left us without a purpose, and he has not left us without a prayer. In fact, he has promised us that if we ask, he will provide us with everything we need in order to do the greater works of representing him and his gospel throughout the world. So then, my fellow followers of Jesus the Messiah, I ask you, are we willing as individuals and as a corporate body, are we willing now to launch out so as to do greater works? We have lots to do until the Lord returns. Are we committed to launching out so as to do greater works?